This is the My Dark Path podcast. The decorations have been taken down, the costumes put away, and all store displays are now about Christmas. Halloween is well and truly over. But we here at My Dark Path can't stop thinking about one of our favorite holidays. So we decided to keep the haunted holiday going for one more episode, even now in November, as Hallow's Eve has a very dark path indeed, and perhaps not for the reason you may think. Let's talk about Halloween and candy. When you stop to consider it, Halloween is a fascinating holiday, at least partly because it is one of the most, if not the most, community-oriented. Christmas and Thanksgiving are spent with the family, and most other holidays are also spent with one's family or close friends, or simply enjoying a day off from work. Only the 4th of July comes close to bringing a community together to celebrate a holiday, but Halloween then goes one step further. On Halloween, we invite complete strangers and well-known neighbors to come to our door in disguise and, in response to what is essentially a threat, trick or treat, we give these people free candy. Well, free to them at least. The National Retail Foundation reported that in 2019, the last Halloween before the pandemic, Americans spent $2.6 billion on candy for 300,000 tons of sweets. That's an incredible amount especially considering how much of it is then given to strangers who come to your door. And yet, this time-honored ritual is often the most contact many people will have with the children on their street year-round. On Halloween, we give food to our neighbors and strangers alike as a part of this nationwide celebration. Halloween is a community holiday, and a fun one, a joyful one, but also one with a dark side, a scary side and not the fun scary side of dressing up, going to haunted houses, or watching scary movies. Genuinely scary. And it all centers around the candy. One of the ironclad rules I got growing up with my brothers and sister was that we should eat nothing until we got home and he could check our candy. Indeed, if horror movies have taught us anything, it is to check your candy when you go trick-or-treating. Beginning in the 70s, hospitals and medical centers offered to x-ray Halloween candy for free to ensure no razor blades or needles were inserted. And back then, everyone knew somebody who knew somebody else who had a cousin who'd bitten into a candy bar and gotten cut up by a razor. Now, there could be something to the story's urban legends that everyone knows is true, even if the story is third-hand. Reality is trickier than urban legends, Candy tampering even has an official name, Halloween sadism, coined by Dr. Joel Best, a sociologist who's extensively studied the phenomenon. Today, we will walk a dark path looking at Halloween sadism and strangers with candy. Now, before we get going, I want to let you know that if hearing about children being hurt bothers you, please let me encourage you to check out one of our other spooky episodes— perhaps Haunted Dolls or The Witch Trials Before Salem or our three-part series on the Amityville Horror, all of which make for excellent listening. Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal— 
So if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. And since friends stay in touch, visit us on YouTube, follow us on Instagram, or visit our website, www.mydarkpath.com. I'd also encourage you, if you're interested, to join our Patreon at patreon.com slash mydarkpath. My Dark Path Plus subscribers get a free full-length episode every month, plus every quarter, free surprises like t-shirts and books. Finally, thanks for listening and choosing to walk the dark paths of the world with me. Let's get started with this special Halloween after Halloween episode of My Dark Path, episode 45. So get your costume back on, grab your pillowcase or plastic pumpkin, and let's trick or treat our way through dangerous strangers with candy. Part 1 Halloween sadism began in 1959, right at the end of the 50s in Eisenhower's strong, patriotic America. On October 2nd of that year, CBS television premiered a new show, The Twilight Zone, offering viewers a weekly program that showed strange and different situations, often with a moral or political lesson. The country was beginning to change in the wake of the post-war boom in the 60s, with a radical change to the nation and community on the way, were just around the corner. That Halloween, a Fremont, California dentist named William Shine distributed 450 laxative-laced candies to children, 30 of whom fell ill. We still don't know why he did it. He never offered an explanation. He was later charged with an outrage of public decency and unlawful dispensing of drugs. He was fined, given a four-month suspended jail sentence, and two years of probation, which doesn't sound like much for someone who poisoned 30 children. He kept his license to practice dentistry, although I'm not certain I would want him as my dentist. He was the first in what would become a long line of candy tamperers, some of whom were real, many of whom were not. Another high-profile case made headlines in 1964 when a 47-year-old mother from Greenlawn, New York, named Helen Peifel, handed out bags of treats containing arsenic-laced ant traps, metal mesh scrubbing pads, and dog biscuits to teenagers she thought were too old to be trick-or-treating. She was arrested, charged with endangering children, found guilty, and given a suspended sentence. Peifel told police she didn't mean it maliciously, but was annoyed by the Halloween custom, according to the Milwaukee Journal. She also allegedly told teens that she was giving them poison and made no attempt to disguise it as candy. She was later committed to a state hospital for mental observation. In 1970, an article entitled, Those Treats May Be Tricks, appeared in the New York Times. Published on October 28, it cautioned, quote, Take, for example, that plump red apple that Junior gets from a kindly old woman down the block. It may have a razor blade hidden inside. The chocolate candy bar may be a laxative. The bubble gum may be sprinkled with lye. The popcorn balls may be coated with camphor. The candy may turn out to be packets containing sleeping pills. End quote. No evidence, just a lot of maybes of something dangerous. Now, this is a pattern we'll see from the 70s through the present day, the news media presenting sensationalized stories about what may happen with no actual evidence that it has happened. Paradoxically, 
Just because the media sensationalizes something doesn't mean there is not an underlying danger. However, far more often than not, the danger to children at Halloween is not from strangers with candy, but from family with candy. The same year that the New York Times warned of stranger danger at Halloween, the first death from Halloween candy occurred when a five-year-old Detroit, Michigan boy, Kevin Tostin, fell into a coma, was brought to the hospital, and died four days later without ever regaining consciousness. An autopsy revealed that he had ingested heroin. Tests on his Halloween candy found trace heroin dust, causing police to investigate those who gave out candy on Halloween night. However, police eventually discovered that the boy had actually found his uncle's heroin stash and mistakenly eaten it. The family then put a small amount of heroin on the candy to throw off investigators. Clearly, the tactic only delayed justice, and those responsible found themselves arrested and on trial. In 1974 in Pasadena, Texas, Ronald Clark O'Brien attempted to poison five children, including his five-year-old daughter Elizabeth and his eight-year-old son Timothy. Although five kids were given pixie sticks laced with potassium cyanide, only young Timothy consumed his, resulting in his tragic death. Although the community initially mourned for the O'Brien family, Things became suspicious when it was revealed that Ronald, an optician by trade and deacon in his local church, was deeply in debt to the tune of $100,000 and had taken out life insurance policies on both of his children. He had distributed poison candy to other children to make it seem like a Halloween sadist had done it. His actions earned him the nicknames The Candyman and The Man Who Killed Halloween. Ronald Clark O'Brien was convicted of capital murder in June 1975 and executed by lethal injection in March 1984 at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville. His crimes against his own children were heinous, and furthermore, they promoted panic and fear across America. Not only did he poison his son and attempt to poison his daughter, but to cover up the crime, he attempted to poison three other children in his neighborhood— giving further fuel to the moral panic over Halloween sadism and not-so-strangers-with-candy that come trick-or-treat. The moral panic also got a boost from the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders when someone put cyanide in Tylenol bottles in the Chicago area, which is tangentially why virtually everything has tamper-proof packaging nowadays. A few copycats tried to kill family members with allegedly tampered Tylenol, but what was determined to be an in-house murder attempt. Although this event did not take place on Halloween, it reinforced the popular idea that strangers tampered with products to hurt or kill innocent people just by taking a painkiller or eating a candy bar. Sadly, as with Ronald Clark O'Brien and the Chicago Tylenol murders, such is also the case with most Halloween sadism events. It's an inside job. In 1985, Professors Joel Best and Gerald T. Horiuchi authored a paper entitled The Razor Blade and the Apple, The Social Construction of Urban Legends, a study in the urban legend of neighborhood monsters poisoning trick-or-treaters. Best and Horiuchi, sociologists at the University of Delaware and California State University, Fresno, found that even though there were plenty of newspaper articles warning parents about this urban legend, there were less than 90 instances of what actually can be considered as candy tampering between 1958 and 1983. As with poor Kevin Tostin, 
A three-year-old in New Britain, Connecticut, was diagnosed with cocaine poisoning after Halloween in 1994. Police suspected his Halloween candy, but no drugs were found on the leftover pieces of candy, and suspicion, as usual, then turned to relatives and friends. In the 21st century, there are still isolated incidents of Halloween sadism, none of which were fatal. In the year 2000, James Smith of Minneapolis allegedly put needles in Snickers bars and gave them out to kids on Halloween. A 14-year-old was pricked when he bit into the candy, but no one needed medical care. Smith was charged with one count of adulterating a substance with intent to cause death, harm, or illness. In 2000, some kids in Hercules, California came home from trick-or-treating with packets of marijuana done up to look like mini Snickers bars. The police traced the fake candy to a single house. They found the homeowner didn't know the Snickers were actually mini marijuana packs. He was a postal worker who took the candy home when it ended up in the dead letter office and was mortified to learn what he had done. Again, no harm was done in the end. No one consumed the drugs that looked like candy. But again, these stories fed the narrative that people put drugs in Halloween candy on purpose. In 2019, in Colerain Township, Ohio, police urged parents to carefully examine any candy received while trick-or-treating after two people said they found razor blades hidden inside candy wrappers. One of the people claimed to have found a blade and cut a finger while sorting through their candy on Halloween night. While that man went to the hospital for stitches, no one else was injured. The two families who found the blades had trick-or-treated together in the same neighborhood in the Cincinnati suburb, but no one was ever caught. That same night in Waterbury, Connecticut, police arrested a 37-year-old man after razor blades were found in the bottom of two trick-or-treaters' candy bags. The blades were not in candy, just loose in the bags. The man was charged with risk of injury to a minor, reckless endangerment, and interfering with a police officer. The suspect later claimed that it was an unknown accident that he put the razors in the bags. But according to the local paper, quote, he did not provide an explanation as to how the razor blades were handed out to children along with the candy, end quote. So every year, the media is full of these stories. But the fact remains, no one has ever been seriously injured or died from Halloween candy they received from a stranger. That much is true. But Halloween sadism is real, and that is also true. Part 2 One of the great ironies of Halloween is that the way it is currently celebrated developed out of an attempt to control unruly children on this dark night. As Lisa Morton reports in Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, we link Halloween and its customs to the ancient Celts and the Feast of Samhain. And the specials you watch on the History and Documentary channels will go into detail on how the celebration is centuries old. But the American way of celebrating it is actually a comparatively new phenomenon. Trick-or-treating did not actually spread throughout the USA until after the Second World War, when rationing meant candy and sugar were strictly limited. It was not until the early 50s that it became popular. Nevertheless, the community celebration of Halloween began much earlier, but was done in a very different way for a very different reason. 
Whereas in Europe, the Harvest Festival was a time for game playing, celebrating, and attempting to learn the name or appearance of the person one might marry, in the early 20th century, the holiday was dedicated to pranks and unruliness by children and teens. In rural areas in particular, Halloween was an event almost exclusively celebrated by mischievous and naughty boys. Throughout America, boys would knock on doors or ring doorbells and then run away, which was the least damaging thing they could do. They would also steal gates, allowing livestock to wander free, throw rotting cabbages at houses, scare pedestrians and neighbors, and even place wagons or buggies or cows on barn roofs. The pranks grew wilder and more damaging. In some towns, the people would wake up on November 1st to find all gates missing and piled up in a massive mound at the center of the main street. By the 1920s, vandalism and destruction had spread to most cities. Windows would be broken, fires set, fire hydrants opened, telegraph and telephone poles sawn down, and automobiles flipped over where they were parked. Pedestrians would find a sock full of flour flung in their faces, covering their entire body with the powder. And remember, this is a time when most people didn't have washing machines and laundromats didn't exist. By 1933, Halloween was called Black Halloween in many cities, and the people carrying it out were hoodlums who needed to be stopped. Now, this is a far cry from dressing up as your favorite Avenger or Disney princess and then asking the neighbors for candy. In order to stop the vandalism and threats to the neighborhood, civic organizations in the community began to work together to create activities to prevent these hoodlums, now transforming into neighborhood children, from getting into trouble. Schools began to organize activities both during the school day and for Halloween evening. Books began to be published about the activities families and communities could organize. Both the books and community leaders encouraged that the Halloween activities actually begin a week or two before the actual holiday, and thus not even giving these unruly children the time to plan pranks. It's hard to contemplate how to flip a car over when you're busy learning lines for your school's Halloween play or making a costume for the school's Halloween pageant, which would feature prizes from local businesses who would rather give a few items to the contest winners than clean up the inevitable vandalism that would otherwise follow. Contests were especially big in the child-distracting Halloween world. Window decorating contests, poetry contests, baking contests, and costume contests were encouraged. In one of the more clever ideas, schools would host a party and then put all of the students' names in the hat, and then the winner would be announced on the radio that evening. The catch was, you had to be home in order to win the prize. So children would leave the party at school and race home in order to be eligible to win. There was no time for vandalism. An amazingly clever idea. Now, because of the Great Depression, neighborhood parties also became a way of organizing activities to limit impish kids. Families would pool money and resources and have a house-to-house -house party in which groups of costumed children would be led from house to house in a neighborhood, with each house having a different activity or treat. It is the house to house party that eventually led to the most cherished of all American Halloween traditions, and it was developed to stop the damaging activities of malicious children. The first recorded use of trick or treat is from a 1927 newspaper describing pranksters going from house to house using the phrase to blackmail homeowners into giving them something to eat 
or another treat in exchange for not being pranked. By 1939, communities were seeing more groups of children in costume going house to house using the phrase. By the 50s, trick-or-treating was a national tradition, with children in costumes continuing to use the phrase. To the present day, we might note, even though pranking had almost entirely vanished from the holiday. By the 50s, trick-or-treating was a national tradition, with children in costumes continuing to use the phrase even to the present day, although, we might note, pranking had almost entirely vanished from the holiday. In some parts of the country, the pranking was moved back to the night of October 30th, which came to be known as Mischief Night or Doorbell Night, the latter based on the practice of ringing a doorbell and running. In parts of the country, it was also known as Cabbage Night, for those cabbages thrown at houses and people, Gate Night, for the continued removal of gates, and even Mat Night in communities in which children would swap welcome mats between houses. The tradition took a dark turn in Detroit in the 70s and 80s when it became known as Bonfire Night, with tens of thousands of fires being lit in the city each October 30th. This tradition has fortunately ended, but it is a reminder that Halloween was often a time of danger. The first time that candy presented danger to children, however, had nothing to do with Halloween sadism and actually occurred in the summer. Part 3 In 1874, the United States experienced its first missing child case that made national headlines. For the last five days of June of that year, two men would drive their horse and buggy down East Washington Avenue in the Germantown area of Philadelphia, an affluent neighborhood, and offered candy to the children who played in the yards and the streets there, chatting with the kids as they ate the candy. Earning the children's trust through this act, the men then set their plan in motion. On July 1st, 1874, Charlie and Walter Ross, ages four and six, were playing in front of their family's mansion. The boy's father, Christian K. Ross, was a wealthy Philadelphia businessman, well known in the community. However, the family's fortunes had been greatly diminished by the stock market crash of 1873, and Ross had been keeping up appearances of wealth, despite the family now being much less well-off than their lifestyle presented. On that Wednesday morning, the men pulled up in front of the house as usual, but told the boys they did not have time to get the candy that day, and invited the boys to come with them to buy candy and fireworks for the upcoming 4th of July celebrations. The boys, having become used to getting candy from these men, no longer strangers in their minds, climbed into the wagon. The men pulled up in front of the local store, handed Walter 25 cents, and told him to go into the store and buy the candy and fireworks. When Walter came out a few minutes later, the wagon, the men, and his little brother were gone. The boy's mother was away, recovering from an illness in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Mr. Ross, however, who was home at the time, thought the boys were playing in a neighbor's yard. But soon, a neighbor told him that she saw the boys traveling in a buggy, and the father began the search for his son, which he would continue until his death in 1897. At first, he didn't tell his wife about their missing son, not wanting to worry her or hamper her recovery, and she found out about the kidnapping when he began advertising in the newspaper for his son's return. 
A stranger had found Walter and returned him to his father, but there was no sign of Charlie. Walter told his family everything, including what he could remember of the two men and everything that had happened up to Charlie's disappearance. Two days after that, the father received a crude note, which I'll have read without correcting for the grammar. Mr. Ross, be not uneasy. You son Charlie Brewster, he all right. We has got him and no powers on earth can deliver out of our hand. You will have to pay us before you get him from us and pay us a big cent too. If you put the cops hunting for him, you is only defeating your own end. We has got him fit so no living power can get him from us alive. If any approach is made to his hiding place, that is the signal for his instant annihilation. If you regard his life, puts no one to search for him. You money can fetch him out alive and no other existing power. Don't deceive yourself and think the detectives can get him from us, for that is one impossible. You hear from us in a few days. The spelling and grammar are atrocious, but the message was obvious. Mr. Ross would have to pay a large ransom, and if he sought the help from the police, Charlie would be killed. So we waited. On July 7th, another note arrived demanding $20,000, or about a half a million dollars in today's money, and giving Christian Ross instructions on how to get the money to the kidnappers. The father tried to follow the instructions, but they were unclear, and he did not know how to contact the kidnappers. Lost, afraid, and angry, he finally went to the police, who began looking for Charlie and his kidnappers. Sadly, all the leads ran cold quickly, and communication from the kidnappers ceased entirely. It was not until December 13th, five and a half months after Charlie went missing, that there was a break in the case because of two other crimes. The police were investigating the planned kidnapping of the child or grandchild of the railroad tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt. They found a ransom note in that case that closely matched the one written for Charlie Ross. They identified the handwriting as belonging to fugitive convict William Mosher. Mosher was a career criminal well known to the police who often worked with a fellow career criminal, Joseph Douglas. On December 13, 1874, Mosher and Douglas attempted to burgle the home of Judge Charles Van Brunt in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Sadly for them, Judge Van Brunt's brother Henry lived right next door and saw the men through the window. Gathering a number of armed neighbors with him, Henry Van Brunt entered his brother's home and confronted the robbers. A gunfight broke out as Mosher and Douglas attempted to escape, and both men were shot. Mosher died instantly, but Douglas, though mortally wounded, lingered. Accounts conflict at this point, but according to some in the house, as he lay dying, Douglas confessed to the kidnapping of Charlie Ross, but said only Mosher knew where the boy was being kept. Some thought he also said that Charlie would be found within a few days, but that did not seem to be the case. Upon report of Douglas's confession, Mr. Ross brought Walter to New York to see the bodies. Six-year-old Walter identified the men as the two who gave him candy and money for firecrackers and who took Charlie. Mosher was easy to recognize, even in death, as his nose was badly malformed from untreated syphilis. The men were clearly identified as the kidnappers, but Charlie was not found. Christian Ross spent $60,000, almost a million and a half in today's money, 
the bulk of his remaining family fortune in his futile search for his missing son, and much of the nation joined in the manhunt for the boy. At various points, police detectives from Philadelphia and New York, detectives from the Pinkerton Agency, and even the United States Secret Service were enlisted to bring the boy back to his family. Charlie was the first victim of a crime to become famous across the nation. He became a cultural icon in a manner never seen before, but that became more prominent in the 20th century with the kidnapping of individuals like the Lindbergh baby, Elizabeth Smart, Patty Hearst, and J.C. Lee Duggard. Charlie was the first kidnapping in the nation that got national attention. Posters with his description were circulated all over the United States. Christian Ross even received a telegram from entertainment magnate P.T. Barnum, of Barnum & Bailey Circus fame, that said, quote, If you'll meet me at my home here before Monday, I will pay your expenses both ways. I will pay a large reward, and I think I can get Charlie, if alive, end quote. Ross met with Barnum, who offered to pay a $10,000 reward for Charlie's safe return. But this being P.T. Barnum, there was a condition. If Charlie were returned safe, he would have to go on tour with the circus and be put on display as a part of Barnum's traveling exhibit. Ross Counter offered that if Charlie returned safe, he would reimburse Barnum, rather than have the boys a part of what, at the time, would have been referred to as a freak show. Needless to say, nothing came of the bargain. Police arrested a third member of the gang after the deaths of Mosher and Douglas, William Westervelt was a disgraced Philadelphia policeman and brother-in-law of Mosher, and what police today would call a known associate of Mosher and Douglas. Police were convinced he was an accomplice to the kidnapping of Charlie Ross. They arrested him and put him on trial in August of 1875. While he was awaiting trial, Westervelt was visited in prison by Christian Ross. Westervelt told Ross that he was not involved in the kidnapping but knew for a fact that Charlie was still alive when Mosher was shot dead in Brooklyn. He did not know where Charlie was being held, however. The jury found him not guilty of kidnapping, but he was convinced of conspiracy and sentenced to six years in prison. After Westervelt's trial, Charlie's father wrote a book, The Father's Story of Charlie Ross, The Kidnapped Child. It was published in 1876 and was arguably the first true crime bestseller. All profits from the book went into looking for Charlie, and copies of the book were sent to police all across the nation to aid in the nationwide search for the boy. Christian Ross died in 1897, never finding his son or learning what happened to him. Charlie's mother died in 1912. The Ross mansion was torn down in 1926. A Presbyterian church now stands on the site of the kidnapping. Walter Ross lived until 1943 and had to endure not only being the survivor of the kidnapping that took his younger brother, but a swarm of imposters claiming to be the missing Charlie in his later years. Beginning in the 20th century, many adult men came forward claiming to be Charlie Ross. Each was disproved. Gustave Blair of Phoenix, Arizona, for example, petitioned a court to officially identify him as Charlie Ross. He claimed he'd been raised in a cave and then been adopted by a man who told him his real name was Charlie Ross. In Maricopa County, an Arizona court declared Blair to be the real Charlie Ross in 1939, 
but Walter and the rest of the Ross family refused to accept Blair's claim. Walter referred to Blair as a crank and told reporters, quote, the idea that my brother is still alive is not only absurd, but the man's story seems unconvincing. We've long ago given up hope that Charles ever would be found alive, end quote. After the ruling, Blair legally changed his name to Charlie Ross, but the family declined to even meet with him. Subsequent DNA testing on Gustave Blair's descendants and members of the Ross family has confirmed with 99.9% certainty that he is not Charlie Ross. While being the first major publicized kidnapping in America, it was certainly not the last. Although at the time it was one of the greatest crimes of the Gilded Age, the story of Charlie Ross has faded from popular memory, leaving his kidnapping a footnote in American history, unknown by most except by listeners of this podcast. Although, one thing from the kidnapping entered the communal consciousness. It is the origin of the phrase, oft-repeated in the months after Charlie's abduction and indeed by parents ever since, never take candy from strangers. Part 4 We do not rejoice or find fun in the suffering or deaths of real children. Though putting children in danger and even having them die is at the center of entertainment from Shakespeare's Macbeth to Frankenstein to Jaws to Jurassic Park, I share these sad and difficult stories with you today to allow us to think about the darker sides of what scholars call recreational fear. Halloween is a children's holiday that has become a huge holiday across the board, second only to Christmas in terms of the money spent to celebrate it. I began this podcast by reminding you how much Halloween is a community-oriented event, and I would love for us to remember that. The kidnapping of Charlie Ross is truly sad, as are the victims of Halloween sadism. But Halloween itself is often a joyful and fun holiday with children and parents alike, enjoying a magical night that brings them to their neighbors' doors in search of the elusive full-sized candy bars and always reveling in the fact that we are engaged in a century-old celebration of being a community. Halloween sadism is a horrible thing to think about, and the media sure likes to think about it and encourages us to think about it in far greater proportion to its actual occurrence. Last year, Pennsylvania's Bensalem Township Police Department announced its concern that people might be putting edibles, that is THC-infused candy, in trick-or-treat bags this Halloween. Local news, of course, ran with it despite no actual evidence anyone planned on doing it. And as I record this episode, right after Halloween 2022, the newest moral panic concerns fears that people may try to give children rainbow fentanyl as Halloween candy. According to the DEA, fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. The DEA has warned that they've seen a rise in fentanyl in bright colors with a similar appearance to candy, which they refer to as rainbow fentanyl. Drug traffickers are allegedly even referring to rainbow fentanyl as Skittles or Sweet Tarts, the names of real candy. The DEA warned that they believe traffickers are specifically targeting children with this rainbow fentanyl and have cautioned parents to be very careful around Halloween. 
Now that threat indeed sounds terrible, and given the sheer number of horrible stories I've shared today about bad things happening to children at Halloween, the warnings would seem to have some merit. That is, until you actually begin to examine them. The DEA's warnings have no evidence to back them up. No evidence that drug traffickers are targeting children or planning to give away an expensive drug on Halloween to their neighborhood children. Sad though it is, illegal drugs are a business in the United States and no one gives away their product to people who would not actually be a good customer for it. The likelihood of drug traffickers risking their entire operation just on the one-off chance that some local child would take the drugs that look like candy seems nonsensical. In addition, as we've shared again and again in this episode, when children are found to have ingested drugs on Halloween, the cause is not a stranger, but most often a relative. That's not to say that Halloween sadism has not had a chilling effect on the holiday. Local media will continue to warn about the dangers of trick-or-treating and report rumors and suppositions as real danger. And indeed, there is danger on Halloween, but tainted candy is not it. According to the National Safety Council, children are more than twice as likely to be hit or killed by a car on Halloween than on any other day of the year. And if nothing else, we can take away from today's episode the fact that, statistically speaking, your next Halloween will be safe, fun, and free from real danger or fear, at least from candy and strangers. But make sure you bring that flashlight, look both ways before crossing a street, and be careful as you walk around the neighborhood. There is evil in the world, and our mortal existence requires, unfortunately, that we be exposed to it. But perhaps the most potent message we can take from all of this is simply to love and care for the children we are entrusted with. The protective care we can provide can shield them from most but not all of the risks that can hurt them. And while you finish the pounds of candy that your children have gathered from Halloween, gather those children, keep them close, and teach them. And always remember to save an almond joy for Dad. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. This story was prepared for us by Kevin Wetmore, and I produced this show with creative director Dom Purdy. Big thanks to them and the entire My Dark Path team. Please take a moment to give My Dark Path a rating and a review wherever you're listening. It really helps the show, and we love to hear your feedback. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time. Good night.